we ask that God's Holy Spirit would be poured out upon this place uh, into our hearts, into our minds, that we might hear this old story and that, that it might plant within us new roots. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Occasionally I meet an eager person who tells me that they are looking for God. They want to find God. They want to know if there's something uh, beyond the normal patterns of human experience. They want to know if there's a healthful, vital connection they can make with a, a real deity, with something real, uh, something permanent, something lasting, that if all else fails, they'll have this abiding connection and love uh, with, with that which is ultimate and true. I think people are still in the mood to search for God, to find God. We have to deal with, with big picture things eventually. No matter how much we want to run away from those issues, they'll always come back because life is principally not about Facebook, you know? Like, life is not about uh, if you like The Walking Dead or not. Like life is really not about whether you understand what's really happening in the House of Cards. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. You won't even remember those things in four years. Uh, what life is about are the ultimate things, but we often shy away from them because they're very intimidating. But I find that when somebody wants to get serious and they start searching for God, that search takes them in a variety of places. Many people look for God in the monastic route, that God is found in, in the disciplined life, in, in a life of reflection and quiet and uh, solitude. Uh, some people try the uh, more charismatic route, that God is in um, is in um, extravagant works of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues. And when people are praying or speaking in tongues, then God's presence is manifested and real and tangible. And some people are, take, take Rousseau's route, that they think God is present when you get in touch with nature, when you realize you're part in the natural order. Bob Marley thought that God was in smoking pot, that you could smoke a lot of weed and you would have a transcendental experience in which you would connect with the, the deep universal rhythm. Uh, some people, like the people I went to college with, they thought at Eastern University God was in protests. God was in social action. So, if you, so during the um, initial stages of the Iraq War, God was in Manhattan protesting in the street with you. That's where God was. God forbid you had to find like a bathroom, but, but that's, where, that's, where the, that's where the sacred was present. And today, I think if you ask most people if there was a God or where you would find God, they would say, well, you have to look within. You find your own story, your own song, your own inner strength, your own identity, sexual or otherwise. Uh, you, you discover yourself, and the more you discover yourself, the more you find God. Uh, I think the question it's still an important one. Where is God? How do you even begin? I mean, where do you begin to find something that holy, that serious? Where do you find God? I think the key to that question, or the answer to that question, is found in major part in the Emmaus story itself. I think there's an answer to that question. I think this text gives that answer to us. We know the story because these two disciples, not a part of the original 12, were destroyed inside. They really um, hoped um, that Jesus was the one who would come to redeem Israel, but they, they believed in this moment, a few, a few hours after these 
um, rumors of resurrection had sprung up, they believed that they had bet on the wrong horse, that something had gone drastically wrong, and that, that all of their hopes were dashed. And, and then, of course, we know they have this Twilight Zone experience in which the risen Jesus uh, walks with them and speaks with them. And their question it was, was, um, was simple, you know, where is God to be found in the lavish murder? the devastation of Jesus Christ. Where is God in that? How do you discover God in such a situation? Well, Jesus gives them and gives us uh, two ways of discovering not everything, but some really important things about God. Uh, And I'm going to call them the book and the bread. Okay. So he begins with the book, actually. He tells them, O foolish ones, this is in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What I think is fascinating is here are two people who are not believing the rumors of resurrection. Jesus could have appeared to them. The text says he was kept from being seen, almost by a divine hand, a miraculous hiding. Uh, But Jesus didn't appear to them right away, saying, well, you should have listened to the women. I'm right here. He doesn't do that. Instead, he does something that I wouldn't have thought to do. He gives them a Bible study. It's fascinating. He gives them a Bible study. It's not a study of basic content. You know, here are the major characters, and here's something about the timeline of the Old Testament, and here's some Hebrew grammar. He doesn't give them a reader response study, you know. What does Leviticus mean to you <laughs> as a 25-year-old, you know, white woman? I mean, really, help understand. Um, he doesn't do that. He gives them a lesson. This is so fascinating and odd and wonderful. He gives them a lesson in hermeneutics, in interpretation, the art and skill of interpreting and understanding the Bible. He helps them to take all the texts in scriptures that seem to have loose ends, and he ties them up in a, in a, really, in a really important way. Uh, he, he helps them to understand what the whole history of God with his people is about. And, and he walks them through the Old Testament. As you may know, the Old Testament, the early, um, uh, the early uh, uh, canonizers of that text collected the books of the Old Testament in bundles. There were like three bundles. There was the Moses bundle, and then there, were the, the, there was the writing bundle, and then there was the uh, prophets bundle. And what Jesus is doing here is taking them through each of these bundles. He says, the text says he starts with Moses. That is, he starts with Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Moses bit. And then it says, and he, speak, and he goes through all the prophets. That's the last bundle. Um, th- that's, those are the sages, the great predictors, the wise men of Israel's tradition. And then it says, and all the scripture, meaning from Moses to the prophets and everything in between. What's meant is the in-between bit, the middle bundle, the writings, that is the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and so on. In other words, what he's doing is saying it's not like the Messiah was predicted by one person in one obscure place, but that the whole trajectory of Scripture and the individual passages of Scripture all look forward to a time when Jesus 
Christ would come. Um, and so I, I, I wonder what this would have looked like. I wonder if he took them to the Moses bundle and showed them Genesis 3 and said, you remember that part in the Bible where it said the head of the serpent would eventually be crushed by the seed of the woman. Well, that's happened in me. I wonder if he took, him, took them to Genesis 28 and said, do you remember the dream that Jacob had about the ladder stretching from earth to heaven? Well, I'm that ladder, that mediating presence. I wonder if he took them to Numbers 21 and said, do you remember that really strange story about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness? that horrific statue, and everybody who had a venom-filled body, if they just looked at it, would be made well? Well, I'm like that snake that was lifted up in the wilderness, just as I was lifted up on the cross and can save people who look with faith. And maybe he brought them to Deuteronomy 18 and said, do you remember when Moses, who was dying, said, there's going to be somebody who comes after me, a great prophet, and you should listen to him? Well, that's me. Maybe he went to the writings and talked about the Psalms and said, you know, do you remember how often the psalmist uh, spoke about the anointed one, the great king that would come? Well, I'm the fulfillment of all those yearnings. And do you remember in the wisdom literature when wisdom was personified as a human being? Well, I am that human being. Or maybe he went to the prophets, you know, to Ezekiel uh, 47, where the prophet talked about living waters that would eventually pour forth and, and flood the world and fill people with new life and vitality. Well, that's what I've come to give you. Or maybe he went to you know Jeremiah 31, which promised a new covenant that would be filled with forgiveness. Or maybe he went to Isaiah 53 and talked about the suffering servant who would bear the sins of the nation. Wherever he went, Jesus took the whole canon in each of those bundles and spoke about himself through them. Therefore, the Old Testament is not a standalone text, but all finds its fruition and fulfillment without Jesus. And without Jesus, it doesn't make sense. He is the golden thread of that text. Uh, and so, why does Jesus do this Bible study? Is it just to give them a bit of information? No. It's to show these disciples who are mourning the devastation of Jesus Christ, that that same devastation was not an accident of history. This isn't sort of a, a godly Russian roulette. It's not a bad roll of the dice. This was, to quote the passage, necessary. This was all part of the plan. This was the central cog in the plan. And if this didn't happen, nothing else would work. This is what it's been about the whole time. The very thing that you're mourning after, you should celebrate. This is the work of God. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is why he's doing this study, to show them how necessary his death was. And so, uh, friends, two, two thoughts about the book. It is vital for us to have a high regard for the Bible. I, that sounds simple, I know, but the thing is, Jesus loved the whole Bible. And he saw each part as an inspired and effective witness. But equally important, it is vital to have a high regard, but it's also vital to have a correct interpretation of the book. To read it the right way. This is the wonderful thing about the Bible, if you understand it rightly, is that it can deliver us from too much self-focus. The first question we come to, we, let me revise that grammatically. When we come to the Bible, the first question ought not to be, what does this say to me? What does this say about me? The first question that we should think of as we come to the Bible is, how does this text Lead me to my Savior. 
How does this text present Jesus Christ to me? Does it foreshadow him? Does it speak about him more concretely? Um, Because the steady drumbeat of the scripture is not us or our story. It's Jesus and his story. The Bible is convinced that the story of God is actually more important than our stories. Great as they are, fantastic as they are, they could make a lifetime original movie out of the life of anybody here, and I would watch it, and you would watch it too. And yet all of those stories find their truest fulfillment as they're taken up into a bigger meta-story in which we find our true purpose connected uh, to the story writer. Um, And notice the effect, friends, of right hermeneutics, that when the book is opened up and properly understood and interpreted, the disciples' hearts burned within them. This had never happened before. They had read scrolls of Torah, no doubt numerous times, had memorized enormous swaths of the scripture, and yet their hearts never burned. But they did burn whenever they understood that all of these loose ends were tied up uh, in the great fulfillment that Jesus offered. And so that's something about the book. The result of the book was that they saw God. They found God. They were not lost in the dark. But there's also bread here, a synecdoche for what we could call the sacrament. Verse 30, when Jesus was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. We know this is a sacramental act because the gestures are identical to the Last Supper. This is from Luke 22. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. The risen Jesus doesn't only teach hermeneutics, ideas, interpretation, skill. He gives them a memorable, visual, and recognizable sign to reinforce those hermeneutics. Uh, When Fitzsimmons Allison was here, he was... uh, present in this pulpit several years ago, almost at this time of the year. And uh, I remember the night before he preached, we were up way too late. He was 87 at the time, and I asked him if he wanted a drink. And he said, well, I certainly wouldn't turn down any Maker's Mark. And I'm like, whiskey, huh, Maker's Mark, okay. So I poured him Maker's Mark and me, I didn't like it. I acted like I liked it, you know, to seem like manly. So I drank my horrific maker's mark, and we talked theology. And, and he, um, he mentioned a story to me that he repeated in, the, in his sermon the next day, so I think it's free territory. But um, uh, Fitz was raised by a pretty hard man, kind of a walking callous, uh, who wanted his sons uh, to learn the meaning of hard work. He wanted them to know that just because they were raised in the low country of South Carolina, they weren't exempt uh, from labor and strain. And uh, he said, Fitz, you need to discover what your eyebrows are for. They're to keep the sweat out of your eyes. Uh, and so he worked them very hard. And, uh, um, and, and Fitz remembers this story. When he was 12 years old, um, uh, Fitz had a kidney colic, you know, a kidney stone. And if you've ever tried to pass a kidney stone then you've lived through a very hellish experience. It's, it's often very, very painful. And this was the first of these um, kidney stones that he had passed or tried to pass, and he was uh, laying on the ground, screaming and writhing in pain. And, and through uh, his tears, um, he was able for a moment to look at his father, his father who had that hard face, that wrinkled face, and, and he saw tears uh, streaming down, uh, from his father's eyes. 
And he said, you know, it, at that moment it hit me. I always knew that my dad cared for me. I, I knew that he cared, but I never really knew that he loved me. And he said, but as soon as I had the evidence of the tears, I really knew it. I knew that my father loved me. And then he said to me, and then later to all of us, aren't you jealous that you didn't have a kidney colic? And then the later evidence that your father really did love you. Really did. The tears were the visible sign of that love. And we know what this is like. It's one thing to hear that somebody loves you. It's another if they can communicate that love physically. And this is what Jesus does here. He gives something not just existential, but tangible to us, tangible to them. Uh, and this is why um, in, in this passage, the book and the bread go together. They fit together because they make the same basic point. Do you know that? That the message of the Bible and the message of the sacrament is the same? It's that the devastation of Jesus Christ was the plan of God. That's where God is. That's where God is. And it's all about that, pointing back to that great, horrible, wonderful event. Um, God is present there. And when um, the Scripture and sacrament are combined, right, the existential and the physical, the audible and the edible, the menu and the meal, when they're all combined, what happens? Verse 31, their eyes were opened, and they said, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? The result, friends, of this, that people see God. They find God. They discover something central about God. They begin to understand, in a new way, the design of God. And then they go and tell everybody that Christ is risen indeed. They know something now, because they see him with their own eyes, and they're brought to a great place of enlightenment. And the book and the bread, that's what we're dealing with in this text, the book and the bread of Emmaus, in Christian scripture and also Christian practice, become the biblical template for Christian worship. You may know this. This Emmaus story gets roots in the book of Acts. You know, the early church, they devoted themselves, it says in Acts 2, to the apostles' teaching, that is unpacking the scriptures, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. This leaks its way uh, into Christian practice, realizing this is the way that we discover the truth of God. This is the way we come to God. The early Protestant confessions do the same thing. They believe that there were two irreducible marks of the church. That is, how God meets us. If you don't have these two things, whatever you have, it ain't church. But with these two things, you don't need anything else, but you need these two things. And they are, this is the Articles of Religion, they say, the, the visible church of Christ is where the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments duly administered according to Christ's ordinance. So where do we find God? Where do we find God for sure? Is it in the cloistered life? Is it in uh, a life that is attuned to nature, you know, the Adirondacks? Is it searching for God within in hunches and feeling and sensation? Is it in social action in the rally? Maybe. Maybe. Sometimes. But there are two guaranteed places. Guaranteed places. The church has historically called them the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary there doesn't mean dull. It means the thing that God ordinarily does. If you want to find God, this is the way that God normally shows God's own self to us. In the means of grace. Scripture and sacrament. Um, the reason that we call them the ordinary means of grace 
And the reason that they are fairly central to our practice and understanding is because nothing else, not the cloistered life, not nature, not God within, not social action, none of those things lead us to the devastation. They don't lead us to the devastation of Jesus Christ, which is the central way of knowing God. God is most clearly revealed in the bloodied body of Jesus Christ. That's special revelation. That's counterintuitive revelation. That's stuff we can't figure out with our own senses. It has to be revealed to us. And the scripture and sacrament uniquely lead us to the cross. So in light of this, I want to call us as a church, and I want to call myself uh, to a true piety, a real piety of holy practices, holy practices. You know, sometimes in church it's okay to be religious, and sometimes outside of church it's really a good thing uh, to be religious. But good habits, uh, and I want to put it this way, to make regular and deliberate access of the means of grace that God has given to us. Uh, We are people of the book. You know, that's what the Muslims call us. It's whatever we make of that. It's not a bad, you know, title. People of the book. That is, we can't find God in all of God's totality without Scripture. And we can't mature and develop as Christians without Scripture, without living in the world of Scripture, without, uh, uh, to, to quote Thomas Cranmer, inwardly digesting the Word of God until it becomes a part of us. Um, there, I want to call us to know and love the Bible more and to imbibe it uh, daily. And on Sundays to pray that we would have open ears to hear it unpacked for us. The thing is, I know that what I've just said can be guilt-producing in some people because when they come to the Bible, they've either tried to read it faithfully and haven't done so, or when they do read it, they, they find it to be antagonistic to them in a way, that, that it eats at them, it accuses them. Uh, and so I find that's the thing. Mo- some people are too ambitious with their Bible reading. I'm going to read 18 chapters a day. And then they fall behind, hate themselves for falling behind, and then stop reading the Bible altogether and start reading Marilyn Robinson. I recommend both, incidentally. Um, uh, but, but some people also have a wrong understanding and, folk, and, and they have a wrong understanding of the focus of Scripture. They think Scripture is principally a word to them about their lives and their needed improvement. And what I'm telling you is that Scripture is not about you, not principally. Uh, to, be- to read it that way, of course, would burn you out. Um, here's my advice when you encounter the Word of God, which I encourage you to do on a regular basis. Uh, read it in smaller bits and spend more time pondering it. It's, it's better that way. Uh, and then, um, when you come to the text, look for your friend who is at the heart of it. Remember, you, you've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in there. Uh, and your friend is Jesus Christ, who is the common drumbeat throughout the text. Look for the friend. Look for the, the, the man of sorrows. Look at the one who meets you in the devastated place. Um, because, friends, we have a gift in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, God has for us demystified himself. He's not coming to you veiled in complete mystery. People overdo the mystery thing in religion. I get it. It's quaint and interesting and makes you feel very spiritual. I understand. Um, But the problem is that um, that sounds like a Roman cult. Mystery cults. They were all about mystery cults. Christianity is about some of the mystery has been cleared away, and we actually have something to say about Jesus, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And so God is demystifying himself for you in the Scriptures. You can find God. You can understand something about God. And so I encourage you, 
to quote the children who spoke to Augustine, take up and read. Take up and read. We're people of the book. We're also people of the bread. That doesn't sound as good. But people of the bread. That is to say, we meet together on Sundays for a humble but heavenly meal. We believe, given the words of St. Paul, that when we encounter this bread and wine, which are bread and wine, we're also connecting spiritually with Jesus Christ. Who said when you par- Paul said, when you partake in the bread, you have a koinonia, or a relationship with the body of Christ, similar with the wine and the blood. When we encounter these elements, we're encountering something more than just materiality, but something of eternity. And so I want to say to you kindly, lovingly, but earnestly, um, to make a priority, make it a priority to be at church. I mean, make a priority to be at worship. Nothing is more formative in the Christian life than public worship. Um, I Make it more important than sports and more important than a nice day. Um, we have to come here together because this meal and this encounter with each other, um, with this meal, helps us to see God, to come in close contact with the risen Jesus Christ. And more than that, with a life that is saturated in Scripture and fed with this bread, we can be steadied in the hour of our own devastation. And we all know it's coming, right? I mean, it's, it's in an email you're going to get tonight or some phone call or some snarky thing somebody's going to say to you, and it's going to lay you flat for a while. Or some more catastrophic loss. But a life that is enriched by the power of God found in the ordinary means of grace, that's a life uh, that can that can endure in spite of all that is thrown at it. You can know your God even in the rough place. And so the God we meet in Jesus Christ, friends, is not playing an endless game of hide-and-seek with us. He is there and he is not silent. God can be known and found and understood and even loved. So, friends, seek the Lord where he is promised to be found, in the devastation and reclamation of Jesus Christ found in the book and in the bread. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.